People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Welcome, Mateo, to Health Gig. Trisha and I are thrilled you're here. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. We just want to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your path to becoming an author and a meditation teacher and all the things that you do. I spent about a decade working in Tibet. I was based in Nepal, but I was going in and out of Tibet. It started out as a pilgrimage, actually. I was studying Buddhism and I was interested in the Buddhist path. I had a political background growing up. And so you could see the political injustices that were happening. And I met many Tibetans who were asking me to take information out and tell people of what was happening in Tibet, what the Chinese government was doing. So it transpired over the course of nearly a decade. Essentially, I was smuggling information out of China for seven of those years. I decided to write a book about that. So that was the first book that I wrote. And it weaves in my own pilgrimage and my own spiritual journey of being an angry political activist but still wanting to make change and how I was trying to negotiate that. And so that was the first book. It was called In the Shadow of the Buddha. And that went on from there. And so I've written a number of books after that on Buddhism, on Buddhist meditation practice. I did my degree in Buddhist philosophy and I've been studying and practicing Buddhism, principally in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for about 25 years now. What attracted you to Buddhism? What was it? I was raised a good Catholic. Roman Catholicism never really spoke to me. When I left the church, if you will, it wasn't as though I was like, I'm done with this. I always felt a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of putting the whole jurisdiction of my morality and judgment and whatnot outside of me. I was like, I can take care of this. I can be responsible. I can take full responsibility for myself. And so then when I ran into Buddhism, I was like, wow, this really speaks to me. It really affected me when people like the Dalai Lama and other teachers who I met, they were given Buddhist teachings, but they would say, hey, don't believe me. Don't believe me just because I'm a monk or because I got shaved head or because I, you have respect. Don't believe me. Go out and try these methods. Try these out. See, actually, if it does bring more compassion into your heart, see if it does calm your mind, see if it does expand your sense of being. And so that's what I did, especially when I was living in Nepal. I would have these extended retreats. I would go off for between weeks and months and meditate, be completely silent, wouldn't be with anybody else except the people who would deliver soup once a day to my door. Mm -hmm. And I did this for years and was trying on these practices. And I must say that some of the Buddhist practices really resonated with me and some of them didn't. And those I just put on the shelf like a book and be like, Mm -hmm. maybe I could come back to those. You know, I started that over 25 years ago. And now as I've come back around, I'm speaking to many, for example, Jesuits in Washington, D.C. now, where you are. Yes. Yep. There might be different ways that we articulate ways to develop the heart and ways Mm -hmm. to calm the mind. And depending on the disposition of the individual, we all have different dispositions. So sometimes maybe the Buddhist path might be appropriate for certain individuals, maybe the Christian path, maybe different paths. But once that door opens, we have our experience and the experiences that we have within meditation or on the spiritual path are beyond description. They're beyond labeling them uh, Mm. to a particular religion or a particular technique. 
And so what really drew me in was this ability where the responsibility for my own life, my own actions relies right here with me. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, so you were gone for seven years, you said, seven to 10 years? I was based in Kathmandu for, oh, for wow. eight years. I had a house there and I was going in and out of Tibet. I was going over the border wow. to Tibet or I would go through China. Did you work for an organization or mm-hmm. were you? Yeah. So you were affiliated with an organization. It wasn't initially, but then eventually I was supported by the International Campaign for Tibet that's based mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. As I write in the Shadow of the Buddha, when I came back, I was relatively young. I was in my late 20s and I was coming back and coming into the National Security Council in Washington, D.C., into the U.S. State Department, into these places. And that was one of the struggles that I had because I was collecting this information as a kind of political activist, if you will. Wow. And the people who were giving me the information were giving it out of their risking their life. Kind of like a spy in a way. I talk about that in the book because I made the differentiation dependent upon my motivation, actually. Uh, but the uh, way that the information was received right. was quite different. Like when you're in the halls of Congress or at the NSC or elsewhere, the way that that information is received could be very calculating. And it made me feel very uncomfortable. But in any case, I continued that work for as long as I could. Now this work could not be done. China's surveillance system would not allow this. But at the time, it started in 1999 till about 2008. It was a period when China didn't have such massive surveillance system. But I talk about in the book how I was able to be within China and circumvent the what we call the, the Chinese firewall by using proxy servers and whatnot and being able to get the information out. Technology has really changed. I mean, you weren't a spy, but if you were a spy, technology (laughs) has completely changed the spy business because things that people can be detected so much more easily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that I talk about in the book is how I tried to use some of these spiritual practices, some of these Buddhist practices. As I look back on my earlier self, I don't know how effective I was at actually calming my heart down, like trying to actually have compassion for the people who were inflicting the violence and the injustices. But I can say that now, maybe it's because I live in Southern California now and I'm a little bit removed from that, but I have a few more tools in my meditative toolkit now. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about mindfulness as an important and essential tool in your toolbox. So you've written a book on meditation, meditation coming to know your mind is what it's called, I think. Correct. Correct. Yes. So let's talk about meditation and the benefits. We hear meditation. I mean, now it's mainstream, the word meditation or mindfulness. And there's a lot of notions about what that is. And I think one of the principal notions when people say mindfulness or meditation, they immediately envision being peaceful. They immediately sort of just sitting there. Maybe there's some soft music or like you just did. You took a deep breath. You just say the word and people (laughs) are just like, oh, while peace and restfulness and maybe even states of bliss or these can come while meditating, I talk about meditation as more of a way to come to know this thing that I call me. And in coming to know the mind, in fact, that's the subtitle of the book, coming to know the mind, coming to know the mind, how our perceptions, 
how our reactions, how all of these work to influence the way that I live in the world and the way that the world affects me. Because at some point, hopefully on our path, we acquire mental tools or physical tools that allow us to have some awareness that when there's some very strong stimulation and our reaction that happens, Mm. the gap Mm. in between stimulation and reaction, we can elongate that gap. So then we can become in control of our reaction. And maybe we react the same way that we were going to before, but we do it with some sort of conscientiousness that we know that we're doing that rather than just, and I'll give you an example, okay? Yesterday I was sitting here, I have my window here and my neighbor, he loves to take care of his yard with the leaf blower. <laughs> and like, we all know leaf blowers. We all know that sound and the smell of the kerosene, all that. So I heard the sound and immediately I feel that I have that stimulation and I feel that my breath comes up into my chest and immediately sort of like springboards this thinking, what the heck is he doing? And I caught myself and I do what I do now, where it's a kind of mnemonic device. It's a kind of remembering, which actually mindfulness, the original word that we translate as mindfulness is sati, which means to remember or to recall. And what are we remembering or recalling when we do mindfulness practice? We're recalling a certain method that brings us back into a state of being that we aspire to. So usually that method is in mindfulness practice is we come back to the breath, right? Or we come back to the object of our concentration, perhaps sensation of the body. Whatever we've chosen to bring the mind back to, we bring it back to. In this case, this is in the real world, right? Mm. Because I'm not sitting here meditating or anything. There's a leaf blower that is not a nice gong or it doesn't (laughs) smell like incense or whatever it is that people associate, but it's still the same practice. I hear that. And rather than having that reaction, I intercept it. And I literally just put my hand on my belly and I breathe in and expand my belly out. Boom. I've cut my habitual reaction to leaf blowers. And the more that I do that, the more the leaf blower has control over me. I don't want the leaf blower or the sound. That's essentially what it is. All of these stimuli around us that really send us off, that trigger us, they have control over us. And they're not super complicated techniques. They just take a bit of mindfulness. They just take a bit of effort, in other words, to bring us back into that space before we react. And we can choose not to react. In this case, whatever, blow your leaves. Fine, right. I'm coming back to what I want to do. But I'm not going to ruin my day or ruin my morning or, or even ruin a few moments because we're getting older. Man. Why have the leaf blower controlled the moments of our life or somebody that cuts us off in traffic? Or it's the same thing. We receive an email. The email comes in from whatever, the IRS. Hey, we have an audit for you. Right. Before we react, why not intercept our habitual reaction with something that allows us to have more clarity? It's not going to necessarily change the situation. But as the Stoics say, the Stoics, their most famous sayings is that we have very little control of the situation around us. But what we can control is our reaction. Mm-hmm. 
I was just thinking what you were saying. It's like what we've talked about before, Dora, and I talk about this. It's really those in-between moments, those times off the mat, the times off the pillow that we have the opportunity, as you're talking about, to live. And how are you choosing each moment, each breath to live? It's sort of what you're saying in those times. And it gives the power back to us, but it is a practice. It's just a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is a practice. If we can, in our life, be able to cultivate a few minutes, a few moments, maybe even longer for a formal meditation practice or a formal practice where we are practicing introception, what's happening within. So my background is meditation. My mother, she does this in the morning. She prays. Mm -hmm. Whatever we do where there can be some sort of centering practice, and there's many different methods out there. I like the Buddhist method, and so it works for me. But whatever it is that if we can cultivate a kind of formal practice, ideally in the morning, before we check email, yeah, before all of those stressors come at us, because they are going to be coming at us right now, we have one of the greatest stressors perhaps ever where literally the air that we're breathing stresses us out. That is yeah. significant. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to deal with that right. in, in ways other than rage right. because that's right. not working. That's just not working. So it's not working for the masses and it's not working for individuals themselves. Right. And so right. what else can we do when we're at Whole Foods or the bank or wherever and we see somebody who is acting in a way that we don't like. I'm not like saying that we have to act in any particular way, but people aren't going to be like we like them to be. <laughs> That's just the, that is like a fact. So when we see that, do we react with that habitual reaction of just like where we immediately criticize them in our mind? It makes us very angry. It unsettles us. We're doing all of these things that essentially send our autonomic nervous system it spikes our adrenaline and our Mm. cortisol. When we do that repeatedly throughout the day, it sends our system in in that sympathetic response of a sort of fight or flight, get out of here, or I want to fight it response. We can be in that all day long if we don't have some sort of control, if we don't have some sort of method to what I was just speaking about, of intercepting that. We all have people that we observe as well, who, when they wake up in the morning, they look at their phone and immediately they get stressed about whatever they see on their phone or their phone is telling them what they aren't, especially the sort of younger generation with social media, with Instagram and whatnot, where it essentially is showing them what they aren't, what they need. And so it causes, it causes people to be stressed, right? Immediately in the morning. And then throughout the day, move throughout the world and wherever the stressors are coming at them, they're reacting with their habitual reaction. They're in a circular mode where their nervous system is being stimulated and there's no relaxation. There's no response that is other than stressful. So it's no wonder that in the evening that we have all of this adrenaline and cortisol built up in our system that we haven't metabolized at all, that we're expecting to go to sleep and sleep well. And that's not going to happen either. Right. So the end result is our health is going mm, declining. Oh my gosh. And so we're getting de- very sick. What are some of the methods that can be helpful to people? 
my approach to my own health and the way that I approach meditation, the way that I approach breath work is I try to go to a very fundamental level. For example, if I'm going to try to improve my health right now, I'm not going to look first to extraneous things, or I'm going to look to the fundamentals. And for me, the fundamentals are breathing, food, and sleep. It's really basic. If we do like one thing with each of those, or even if we just concern ourselves with breathing, having healthy respiratory mechanics, if we want to call it that, if we, if we want to get a little technical, I've been practicing yoga as long as I've been practicing meditation, doing all of these crazy breath work stuff and pranayama, breathing in between both, you know, different nostrils, holding your breath this way, holding your breath. So I love all of that stuff. However, we all don't have time to be like going off to Nepal for seven years to study these things or even have like 45 minutes for a morning practice, right? So what can we do? It's like a great question. I would just recommend working with your breath to begin with, because there's a number of reasons. One is it doesn't cost anything. First of all, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to pay anybody to like work with your own breath. If you're going to get like a massage or like something else to relax, your breath is always there. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's always there. I like to think of the breath as like your most loyal companion upon your path of introspection. Mm. Because it's always there, whether you're aware of it or not. Our respiratory system is quite interesting because we can dial up our nervous system if we want to get concentrated, if we want to get focused, if we want to get ready for whatever, for a podcast, we can dial it up. And I'll tell you how I did this morning because yeah. it was dark when I got up this morning. Or we can downregulate. We can turn on the parasympathetic. We can upgrade the parasympathetic tone. And the breath is one of the most effective and immediate ways to do that. So I'll give you an example of just this morning. When I got up this morning, it was dark out when I got ready for the podcast. I knew that I needed to be focused and concentrated because I was going to come on here. And it's just like that for anything, for a meeting. I, I do this as well for my Wednesday meetings when I need to be on and I'm presenting. So what did I do? I didn't just go and just guzzle a bunch of caffeine, although caffeine is not necessarily bad. I love the use of caffeine appropriately, but I knew that I needed to actually affect my body to be present here. So what did I need to do? So the first thing I did is it, the sun was barely coming. It wasn't even up yet, but I went outside. I just had my eyes looking towards the sun. This has a, a profound effect on our circadian rhythm where it actually dumps adrenaline and cortisol into our system as a kind of wake up. I do the same thing in the evening when the sun is going down. I do the same thing. There are different kinds of photons that, that we're viewing. And so it actually does a dump of melatonin into our system. Mm. I'm trying to affect the chemistry in my body. I don't think we have to get into the chemistry, what is happening here, but we can feel the effect. That's the first thing I did. But more importantly is I needed to turn on my system. So what did I do? I went and I just moved my body for a little bit, however you want to do it, do a sun salutation or do some yoga or calisthenics, whatever you want to call it, just move the body a bit. And then I sat down and I hyperventilated for three rounds. I took about 30 breaths like this, about 30 breaths like that. And then I exhaled and I held my breath. 
So what am I doing there? My body's only sensing that the respiratory system is getting jacked up and then I'm holding my breath. We only do that. Human beings only do that when they're usually running away from something, like they're running away from a wolf, running away from like evolutionarily speaking. And so the body feels as though it needs to react in a way that needs to be on. What happens when I do that? My hearing goes away a little bit. My digestion stops, actually. I have more circulation that's happening in the body. And this is turning on this sort of concentration or the sympathetic nervous system. Wow, Mateo, you are really amazing. Yeah, thank you. God, we learned so much. We have so many other questions. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well. <laughs>